This is Teaching for Student Success. I'm Stephen Robineau. Before we get into episode 21, I'd like to announce that the Teaching for Student Success podcast has just turned one. Our first episode, a conversation with Nobel Prize winning scientist Dr. Carl Wyman, dropped on October 19th, 2021. Our listenership has been growing steadily. Thank you for your interest, for listening, and thank you for sharing. Now let's get to episode 21. We spend, you spend, higher education spends massive amounts of time and effort trying to implement active learning because analyses, meta-analyses show that students exposed to active learning environments perform better than students exposed to less active or non-active environments. However, despite resources supporting active classrooms, both physical investments and investments in professional development, overall adoption is, shall we say, not universal. The reasons for this lack of universal adoption is incredibly complicated. But the bottom line is that we are failing our students because while we are trying to improve learning opportunities, change is hard and it isn't uniform. By uniform, I mean that different instructors implementing the same practices often have different rates of success as measured by student performance. In this episode, I look forward to a very interesting exchange with Dr. Tessa Andrews, Associate Professor in the Department of Genetics at the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia. Now, for you non-scientists listening, please continue listening. We aren't going to talk about genetics, though we could do that, but that would have to be a different podcast series. The issues we talk about today are as important for history, political science classes, gender studies classes, business, medieval studies, as it is for science, technology, engineering, and math fields. We're going to talk about different practices in active learning classrooms and start to uncover some very important differences based on studies of how expert instructors view and prepare for their classes versus how novices think about and prepare for their classes. Importantly, we will discuss how experts differ in implementation. Even in active classrooms, there are significant differences. We're going to talk about a very interesting study looking at how different expert instructors implement learning in their classes. This discussion is based on two papers by Dr. Andrews, Teacher Knowledge for Active Learning Instruction, Expert Novice Comparisons Reveals Differences by Auerbach, Higgins, Brickman, and Andrews in CBE Life Sciences in the winter of 2018, and another paper exploring the relationship between teacher knowledge and active learning implementation in large college biology courses by Andrews, Auerbach, and Grant. Welcome, Tessa. Thank you for joining us on Teaching for Student Success. I'm so glad to be here today with you, Steve, and your audience. Thank you. We're excited to talk to you. I'm excited to talk to you. So let's start. We've got two papers, a lot to cover here. The first paper, Teacher Knowledge for Active Learning Instruction, Expert Novice Comparisons Reveals Differences. Let's just start with why you wrote this paper. What problem were you trying to address? This line of work was motivated Actually, by work, I started as a graduate student where I was interested in examining active learning classrooms. And I was interested in doing so because I looked around at my own institution and noticed that though there was a lot of evidence about strategies that were more effective than lecture classrooms, 
It wasn't often being implemented. And as a new graduate student, I was recognizing that evidence played a large role in decision making. And I thought that if we had better evidence of the effectiveness of active learning in the context of undergraduate biology, perhaps instructors would be convinced to use active learning strategies. I realize now that was a pretty naive perspective (laughs) (laughs) because actually uh, scientists are like any other humans and they actually don't make a lot of their decisions based on evidence. But that is how I began and did some work as a graduate student where we actually found no relationship between active learning instruction and student learning outcomes, Hmm. which was surprising. As I thought more about that, and I looked really closely at all the literature that did show a positive impact on student learning, I realized that the people in my study, which was a random sample of instructors, were pretty different than the people who'd been studied before who tended to have some sort of special education expertise. And so I started to think maybe there is knowledge and skills that you need to do this well, and that is essential to the effectiveness of active learning. And so that motivated this line of inquiry. And then I was delighted to discover that the K-12 world has been thinking about teacher expertise for much longer than we've been thinking about it at the undergraduate level. And so there were some strong theoretical and empirical work I could draw on there and not assume that it translated necessarily to an undergraduate context, but I could use to guide work in an undergraduate context. Great. Thank you. So do you want to talk about one particular or any particular aspect from the K-12 that really Mm -hmm. becomes a center point of this paper? Yes, absolutely. So the grounding theory or sort of framework that really informed the approach we took and the way we thought about teacher expertise is called teacher noticing. It comes out of K-12 math education, and it's a way of thinking about teacher expertise that really recognizes that classrooms are very complex social environments. And a big part of a teacher's job is to notice what's happening in the classroom and to respond to it in real time. And so teacher noticing thinks about what a teacher attends to or notices in the classroom, how they interpret what they notice, and then how they respond to what they notice. Okay, great. So talk about the experimental paradigm that you set up and how you briefly how you validated that setup. Sure. So we were interested in making an expert novice comparison. So that is uh, pretty much exactly what it sounds like. You try to identify a group of experts that you have some evidence to suggest are expert or skilled in the area you're looking at. And then similarly, a group of novices. So where you have evidence to indicate that they are new to the skill or domain you're interested in. And then you engage them in the same task and see what's different in how they approach and think about that task. And that provides some indication of how experts may approach something in a way that's different than novices. Ideally, that helps us think about how can we help novices develop into experts? What are the new ways of thinking or different ways of thinking that they are going to need to achieve a more expert status? Right. 
Great. So you picked a group of experts and novices. So I think we understand how you get novices. You just look for yes. junior faculty who, who are new to the classroom. That's right. But we've got people who have been teaching for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, who may say they you're looking for people that have active classrooms. And so they may self-identify as having an active classroom. But how did you how do you validate that? That's a great question, and it's never easy in this sort of study. So we took a couple of approaches. So we were interested in anyone who had evidence of their effectiveness, and in particular, evidence of student learning gains in their class. So that's usually established by giving students a pretest at the beginning of the semester and a post-test at the end of the semester, and then seeing how much they've gained. Because that sort of study has been done quite a bit in the context of undergraduate biology education, we could sort of set a cutoff point for the size of gains uh, we considered to be expert achievement. Um, and so we could use published work or unpublished data sets to find people who were really achieving those high learning gains in their classrooms. But we also needed to take another approach because most typical faculty are not actually measuring student learning in their classroom by using a pre and post test design, but their expertise is no less because of that. So we also interviewed all potential experts to get a sense of how they approach their teaching and identified individuals who used uh, you could call it a highly reflective approach or maybe even a scientific approach to their teaching where they gathered a lot of evidence of student learning and thinking and responded to that constantly and iteratively. So they may not pre and post test, but they were relying on a lot of evidence of student learning. Mm -hmm. And so our expert participants had to have a certain amount of teaching experience and meet one or both of those criteria. Right. So that's good. So let's talk about the end. How many, I mean, you didn't just do one of each. How many did you have that were experts and how many did you have that were novices in this study? So as you might imagine, experts are a little bit harder to identify <laughs> than our novices. It's not universal. <laughs> and so we had, I'm double checking the numbers mm -hmm. here. So we had 14 expert instructors and 29 novice instructors. And these were all at R1 universities around the country? Most of them will be at research-intensive institutions. And all of these people taught large intro courses that were 50 or more students. That's right. Yes, we set 50 as the cutoff for large. Uh, okay, great. Thank you. Let's talk about the data. But I mean, it, it, we can. what are the major findings from the study? And then we'll go to the discussion about some particular issues. Yes. So I'll talk a little bit first about the task we had them do because that helps the results make sense. Mm -hmm. So drawing on prior studies of, of K-12 instructors, we used what's called a lesson analysis approach. And so we created three videos of three different instructors teaching three different biology courses. And the video showed a range of effectiveness. Not everything shown in the videos was perfectly effective, and not everything shown in the videos was terrible. It was a it was diverse. 
The videos were short, maybe three to five minutes. And the participants watched them on their computer and then answered questions about them. So they were being asked to identify what they saw in those lessons that was going well and what they saw that needed improved and and why it needed improved. Mm-hmm. And so then we have these um, written answers from both the experts and the novices, and we used qualitative content analysis to compare the things that they were noticing in those same classrooms. So they're all looking at the same videos and then their ability to provide reasoning for sort of the answers that they gave. Right. And so they noticed a wide variety of things across all of the participants, but there were four things that experts paid attention to way more often than novices paid attention to. Yeah. Let's talk about those four things. Yes. Okay. And let me just ask you this question, Steve. I thought I might talk about them in an order that makes sense to me rather than an order that's like statistically what we found. Is that okay with you? You talk in any order that you think is best. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Okay. All of these differences you're going to show are statistically significant among these four. They all meet that criteria. That's right. Okay. So I we found that there were four things that experts notice much more often than did novices. The first one I want to tell you about is that experts really paid attention to the level of cognitive engagement that was being asked of students. So let me explain that. So cognitive engagement, I just think about as as being sort of the, the level of intellectual challenge of the work that they were being asked to do. And so, so the experts really valued when the instruction engaged students in generative cognitive work. And generative cognitive work is when students are asked to generate something that goes beyond what they have encountered in the lesson. So they're not just recalling something that was said earlier or something they read They're not just matching things together. They actually have to generate something that is new. Maybe that's an explanation. Maybe they're interpreting data and they have to generate an interpretation of the evidence in front of them. Mm -hmm. So experts noticed when it was present and they commented on its absence when it was absent. Related to that, but distinct, experts really thought about how the instructor was holding students accountable for the work that they were asking them to do. And so they noticed that the instructor's behaviors are going to impact students' motivation to really work during class. And they noticed different approaches that the instructors in the videos were using to hold students accountable. So this was one of our strongest results. The experts noticed how students were held accountable almost six times more often than did novices. And I think of these as really being paired together because you can create opportunities for really good generative work, but if students don't think they actually have to do that work, then they've not really gained that opportunity. So this is a moment of assessment. Is that right? So this is a formative assessment moment during this practice, during this generative practice that that expert instructors are expecting to see. Yes, exactly. So they expect that the student 
is they're doing the generative work. Let's say that's forming an explanation, but they actually are accountable for doing that work. So maybe they have to write it down. Maybe they explain it to someone else and there are structures to ensure that they're actually doing that work. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, so then there was two other things that were more common among experts than novices. One is that experts noticed when the instructor in the video was monitoring students' thinking in the classroom and responding to it. So they were really paying attention to whether the instructor got access to what their students were thinking during the lesson and then made choices based on that. So that also ties into the assessment, the accountability, the form of assessment, because that assessment design is a way or the words that the students are using as they might walk around the classroom if this is group work that they're hearing the students say. So this is either verbal or written so that the instructor gets insight into what the students are actually thinking. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Very very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then the last piece that we found that uh, that was more common among experts than novices was that they paid attention to when the instructor was planning for what I'm going to call topic-specific difficulties. So let me clarify that. So they were paying attention to whether the lesson design and what the instructors were doing in the moment was really accounting for how students learned that topic that was taught in the lesson. Okay, so this is a specific type of pedagogical teaching intervention that is specific for that con- those concepts. Yes, exactly. In case your audience is familiar with this, I'll offer that this is a known body of knowledge. So this is referred to as pedagogical content knowledge. Mm-hmm. That term is a little broader than what we found. We found sort of one subset of that. But everything I've shared with you so far, I could call sort of generalizable knowledge in the sense that I could apply it whether I was teaching about microbiology or biochemistry or evolution. In each one of those contexts, I would want to be creating opportunities for generative work and monitoring student thinking and holding students accountable. It doesn't matter what topic I'm teaching. But in this case, this is very topic-specific expertise. And so the experts were really paying attention to whether the instructors in the video knew for this lesson that this instructor is teaching, do they know what's hard about this for students? And are they accounting for that? Are they designing questions specifically to challenge what is hard about this topic? Mm -hmm. Are they using specific teaching strategies that might differ if you're teaching topic A versus topic B? That's right. Right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. Very good. So you're getting some really interesting expert differences there. The other major finding of this study is that experts provided more reasoning for what they noticed than novices did. So they were able to explain something that they saw in the video and why that was beneficial to students or not ideal for students. They could provide this sort of deeper explanation of the evaluations they were making of instructors and the suggestions they were making for instructors, what that instructor could change. Whereas novices, 
maybe noticing things or suggesting things, but they weren't able to back that up with reasoning to the same extent. So that depth of reasoning, the ability to explain your answer, why did you choose that? Or why do you think that? Or why are you arguing this point? Exactly. Right. Okay. So you got some great differences. So we, you have some really amazing and super interesting insights into the differences between experts and offices. And we're going to continue in the next paper to particularly talk about this issue of generative teaching. We'll move on to that. But you've got novices and experts. You know how they differ in behavior, at least some of them. So do you have insights yet? And this paper does not really address this, but this is really the future work, right? Is How do you turn novices into experts most efficiently, right? How do you move? Because these experts have been teaching for a long time. I mean, is it just that time has to pass, right? Do they need to spend time in the classroom? Or are there things we can do? Are there interventions? Are there trainings, right? Is there professional development that we can do to help move novices towards experts more quickly than just making the students suffer in the meantime, right? Yes. Five years of suffering. Yes, exactly. This work definitely aims to ultimately inform how could we better train and support future faculty and current faculty um, to build their expertise so that students can enjoy the benefits of active learning that we know are possible. Yeah. So that's where this is headed. But this paper does not answer that question. It, it, it outlines the problem. It generates it. So let me just ask in the, in the, the paper it was published in 18. We're four mm-hmm. years later. <laughs> I don't know if you've done any work on this or if others have continued work on this. I wish I had an easy answer for you. I, I would, we've certainly continued work on this and we have a longitudinal study underway to examine novices over time and see how they develop this knowledge Mm -hmm. um, and how that informs their practices. We have been studying them for about three years, but we're still a few months out from having conclusions that I uh, feel comfortable sharing. All right. So we'll have to come back and we'll talk about that. Um, It makes me think about a lot of training that I've myself have experienced and then trainings that I've been involved in training others through the summer institutes and other other organizations and how this information is really interesting and would really tie in nicely to make sure that you're addressing some of these really important issues. Yes. But this work really leads into your next paper, which I want to get to because there's a lot of interesting stuff in this. The second paper, exploring the relationship between teacher knowledge and active learning implementation in large college biology courses. This really is a takeoff of this first paper where you did novices to experts. Now, in this paper, you take people who you have identified as experts in implementing active learning. They're certainly experienced active learning instructors. And uh, you start to parse that apart. You start to tear that apart and look at differences within classrooms of these instructors. So maybe you could talk about why, again, let's go back to the same structure, why you did this paper, what you did, how you did it. Let's Mm -hmm. go down that road a little bit. Mm -hmm. So the expert novice study is really helpful because it starts to give us some hints about what knowledge might be important. But the task we ask people to do is to evaluate someone else's teaching. And it may be true that someone is capable of evaluating someone else's teaching with particular knowledge, but they aren't as successful at applying that knowledge in their own teaching. So we next really needed to understand what is the knowledge people are using in their own teaching. And we really wanted to think about all the stages of teaching. So as they're planning their instruction, as they are teaching 
in the moment in the classroom and then as they think back and reflect on that after the fact. And so we needed a totally different approach to study that. The next study used a much more in-depth form of data collection where we interviewed faculty before they taught a lesson to really understand everything they were thinking before they actually entered the classroom. And then we video recorded that lesson, which gave us a permanent record of their instruction in that lesson. But then we also used that as a tool for another interview that's called a stimulated recall interview. So we created short video clips from their own classroom and we showed it to them just Shortly after the lesson, sometimes it was later the same day, it was never more than 48 hours after the lesson, and we played those clips for them and we said, tell me everything you were thinking in the moment to try to really jog their memory about what they were thinking in the moment. Being able to hear yourself and see yourself really helps with that. And then we asked some follow-up questions so we could really understand the thinking that went into what was happening in those moments. And then we asked them to reflect a bit also. Great. Can you briefly describe how you selected these 13 candidates? Yes, absolutely. So these candidates had a range of teaching experience. They were all recommended by their colleagues as active learning instructors. They all self-identified as active learning instructors. And when we collected data from their classroom, it's absolutely true that all of them have time where they are not talking and students are working. But we were able to systematically look at their instruction, and I can tell you how we did that in a minute, and divide them into two groups based on their instruction. And that allowed us to then compare the thinking of these two groups. And so I might, rather than calling them experts and novices, I might call them more successful implementers of active learning and less successful implementers. Now, when you use that term, does student success in their classrooms play any role in that determination? We did not have data about student learning outcomes. But what we had data about was their instructional practices. And so we used a few different types of data about instructional practices to triangulate, which just means we sort of use more than one kind of evidence to consider Mm -hmm. what was happening in the classroom. And then we relied on a strong research base about the sort of things that in a classroom contribute to student learning. And so we were looking for those kind of hallmarks of instruction that a lot of evidence has shown better promote student learning. Okay, so you have these 13 instructors. You'll talk in a minute about how you divided those into two groups. The idea is that if, if you investigate the practices that they use in the classroom, that you're, you're inferring student success based on the use of, of highly validated practices. That's right. And we're, and we're very careful in the paper t- to indicate that we can draw conclusions about instructors who use this sort of instruction versus this sort of instruction. We are not claiming to know what the student outcomes in those classes are, but I I think there's good reason and a strong research base to suspect there are differences between these two groups. Okay. So now let's talk about, let's talk about those two groups. How did you, Mm -hmm. you know, how Mm -hmm. how did you come up with two groups? You have 13. How did you break them into two? 
A's and G's. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> yes. So we had two types of data about their instructional practices. So I already mentioned that we video recorded the lesson. So we were very focused on this one lesson because that is what we had evidence about their knowledge. And we were very interested in comparing how knowledge informs practice. So we we're focused on one lesson. We have a video recording of it and we use standard observation protocol is what we refer to them. It's essentially a systematic way to examine the behaviors that are happening in the classroom. So we used one that's called COPUS. It's widely used. Um, It refers to the classroom observation protocol for undergraduate STEM. It's widely used because it's pretty straightforward. You're examining the behaviors that students are engaging in and the behaviors that instructors are engaging in. So that was one form of data, the video data. Then we also had all of the class materials. So what students were asked to do during class. So that might have been on PowerPoint slides, might have been on a worksheet. It might have been in some sort of online learning management system that they interacted with during class. So whatever work students were asked to do during class, we also collected that. And then we analyzed that to try to understand the cognitive demand it asked of students using what's called Bloom's taxonomy. The details of that maybe aren't important, but I'll give this kind of simple contrast. You know, you could think about questions that ask students to just recall information or basically understand something versus questions that ask students to apply knowledge in a new context or analyze data or make some sort of synthesis. Those would be a higher cognitive level question than just a recall question. So we were interested in that use of the higher level questions. Mm -hmm. Great. So when you said you record a lesson, it's a lesson of their choice. So you have 13 different lessons they're giving. They're not all giving the same topic in the same time. That's right. They taught different courses, different students. They're from different institutions. And the choice of date, I would say, was probably some combination of when we could collect data and when they could do it. And we asked them to choose a typical day for themselves. That's great. And Copus, we'll put a link to Copus in the website. There are a number of you who are independently analyzing these data. So it's not just one person's perspective on this. You've got a panel of expert colleagues who are helping you work through this. That's right. For everything that we do. So for the Bloom's analysis, for the COPUS analysis, for all of our qualitative analysis, we always have at least two people who are independently working on it and then coming together to discuss to consensus. Right. Okay. To reduce any particular type of bias. That's right. Okay. Great. So tell us about the groups you found and tell us about the differences between these groups. Sure. We didn't know exactly how they would end up grouping. We didn't know ahead of time that they would neatly fall into two separate groups, but that's what the data showed. We brought together a few different forms of data. I mentioned those before and looked at all of that information together to see how they differed. And they really stood apart as two groups. So One group was having students work for a lot of the class period, uh, 50% or more. A large proportion of class time was spent on that higher level, more challenging question. The other group 
also had a decent amount of class time where students were working anywhere from 10 to 40% of the class period had, had the instructor had stopped talking and the students were working. So a little less time than the other group. And they spent a lot less time engaging students in these higher order questions. So this is figure one in your paper, which is a beautiful figure. (laughs) We were very happy with it. It's a beautiful figure. (laughs) The y-axis is proportion of class time working, like you said, and the x-axis is proportion of class time on higher order cognitive skills. And you just see these two clusters. It doesn't take many seconds to look at it to realize you have two very different groups here. That's right. And so you mentioned earlier the A's and the G's. Yes. When we do this sort of work where where we're going to present qualitative data, we use pseudonyms. So we're not using the real name of these participants. We give them another name. In this case, we used A's and G's as a device to help the reader because we named these groups the generative instructors because they were engaging students frequently in generative work. As a reminder, generative work is when students produce something that goes beyond what they have been presented with in class. Right. They're analyzing, they're, they're synthesizing, they're predicting from the knowledge base that they, they have from the class or from life. That's right. So we named those generative instructors. And so their pseudonyms all begin with the letter G. So they're Greg and Gina and Ginger. And Gloria. Now, wait a second. I have to interrupt and say, wait, four women and one man. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that, but go ahead. (laughs) I believe we had more women than men in this study overall. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So we won't read more into it at this point in time, but in larger data sets, we could reconsider that. I know. I'm just laughing. (laughs) Go ahead. And then the other group we named active instructors. I think this requires a little bit of explanation because this whole time we've been talking about active learning. The problem is that that is a very poorly defined term. And that point has been made by many researchers before me. But what we tried to do here is really think about the sort of cognitive work that students were being asked to engage in in class. And so we've already talked about the generative work. The active work is more about students being busy in some way. They may be physically manipulating something. That's not as common in college courses as it might be in lower level courses. What was most commonly happening is they were really being asked to recall information or recognize definitions or explain a definition in their own words, lower order skills that don't really require them to generate something new. Mm -hmm. And so we refer to those as active instructors. Now, in the last paper, we talked a bit about reasoning. Does reasoning Mm -hmm. play into this as well? So we'll be able to talk soon about the knowledge differences that we noticed between these instructors. And there was a difference in the degree to which they thought about student reasoning. So it doesn't play a role, at least not in a tidy way, in how we compared their instruction. Right. Of course, A question that asks students to provide reasoning for their answer is going to be a higher level question, right? Right. So if you had quite a bit of that, you would be a generative instructor in in the way we approached this. Yeah. 
Okay, so as you said, this the use of the term active is problematic. So because we use active learning as an active learning classroom, there's this massive umbrella. And now you are parsing that a little bit and you're we're now gonna for the rest of the time that we're gonna be talking, we're gonna be talking about generative work or generative classrooms or generative classes versus active classrooms, but in the sense that generative is is higher order, synthesizing things, analyzing things versus, as you said, more recall. That's right. And the origin of those terms was not ours, actually. So there's some really beautiful work by, I think it's Michelin Chi. Oh, Michelin Chi, yes. Michelin Chi. Yes, some beautiful work by Michelin Chi and colleagues um, where they recognize this problem that we don't have a good definition of active learning they are cognitive scientists. They really came from this perspective of what does the research tell us about the sort of work a student could do that would impact their learning. And so they created a framework that distinguished between just passive, so a student sitting and listening in a classroom, which is what's going to happen in our traditional lecture classrooms, active, which is that physical manipulation recall piece. And then they had two higher categories, which collectively are referred to as generative. Um, So that language was based on this framework that already existed. Great. I want to talk about what a generative classroom looks like. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? I mean, let's when we're done with this discussion, I want I want people to walk away having a really clear understanding, not so much of the differences because it will be clear, but what is a generative classroom? In your paper, you really talk about this. And it's important that people start to think about this because this is stuff you can bring to your classroom tomorrow if you spend a few minutes thinking about this. And it really engages students in a different way. The way you talk about it in the paper, you really talk about these classrooms by these generative instructors, you get away from active and you, I mean, just active in any sense, and you start using the term student-centered. So when we talk about a student-centered classroom, if I said, if you and I were, as we are, we're talking about classrooms, if I say student-centered to you, in your head, the, the bubble that opens up is generative. It is not active. In either sense of the word, right? We're going to be talking about a gen, and you're sitting there bobbing your head. (laughs) I just letting everybody know you're bobbing your head. Yes, 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 you're agreeing with that. So go ahead, take some time with that. Yes, that's a great question, and I'll just give the caveat that I'm going to draw a little bit beyond the data from this paper because we have since done this sort of work in many more classrooms. So I have had the opportunity to see a lot of classrooms. A generative classroom. Students arrive knowing that they have work to do in class that day because that is what happens every day. So there's an expectation when they arrive that this is not a class where I listen and maybe doze. This is a class where something will be required of me. And then a good amount of the class period is spent with students engaging in work that is substantive, really designed to get them thinking. A colleague of mine, Erin Dolan, here at the University of Georgia, uses this phrase. I don't know if she coined it or not, but it's always so useful to me. She says, the brain that does the thinking does the learning. And so I always think of that when I think of a generative classroom, that I need to create opportunities where my students are doing the thinking because that is what leads to their learning. It takes a lot of careful thought to make a good lecture, to get the ideas sequenced in a sensible way, 
and that really gets to the heart of the matter. And that is still an important part of any class. These instructors absolutely have time in class where they lecture. But when I do that work, I'm doing a lot of great thinking and learning. But my students listening to it are not doing that thinking. And therefore, they're not learning in the way that I hope they will learn. Right. You, you lack that depth of engagement. Yes. And as you sort of say in your paper, and I think about this a lot, or I used to, they're sitting there thinking, oh, that makes sense. That sounds great. They walk out of that lecture saying, that was an amazing lecture. That was great. And then when you ask them what they learned, it may pretty quickly fall apart. They loved it while they heard it. It made sense while they heard it. But their ability to reiterate it or do anything with what they heard is problematic. That's absolutely right. Yes, there's there's a name for that. It has the word fluency in it. Hmm. It's a cognitive bias. Maybe it's called the fluency bias, where when someone explains something to us really well, we feel like we understand it because right. it was such a fluent description. But that doesn't mean we actually understand it. It just means we perceive that we understand it. Right. And I think the same thing when students, like when, they, when they're studying or the, when they're reviewing notes or, or when they look over a list of things, they just look at it and they say, oh, do you know that? Mm-hmm. I know that. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. I know that. Yes. Mm-hmm. I know that. And I always, w- w- the, the conclusion I came to when I was teaching was that students confuse familiarity with knowledge and they're familiar with it. They don't know it in the sense that they can teach it. Maybe you can talk about that because that's one of the quotes is, mm-hmm. is about teaching. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, that's so true. And that is why getting them engaged in the generative work in class while you are there and maybe you have TAs there or learning assistants is so important because that allows them to recognize what they know and what they don't know. So you may deliver a beautiful explanation and they think, yeah, I totally get this. And then you ask them a question where they really have to apply that knowledge you just conveyed. And that's when they realize, oh, <laughs> Maybe I don't understand it as well as I thought I did. So that information that they get from having the challenge of having to explain something or apply something is really helps them recognize what they know and don't know. And then then they can act accordingly. Right. And this is from a recent episode with Jessamine Newhouse where she talks about we're not really teaching knowledge. What we're teaching is students to do things with knowledge. It's not just about the knowledge itself. Okay, do you know this? Do you know that? Yes, I know that. Yes, I know that. But can you do something with it? And it's it's when you come to that question, well, okay, if you really know this, then you should be able to do this. And suddenly, and that's where things are falling apart. Yes, exactly. And that reminds me so much of, uh, in my own teaching, I think about that when I make the learning objectives for my course. So I could sit down and list for you the topics that I teach, but I've made myself move beyond that because it's not about what knowledge I say to them. It's what knowledge they can use. And so I need to be thinking about my teaching in terms of what I want them to be able to do. So that's a learning objective. And then I have to give them practice doing that in class. Right. Your learning objectives are not what you should know. It's what you should be able to do. So give us an example of one of your learning objectives. Oh, okay. Well, I probably won't get it quite right just off of the top of my head, but I teach natural selection and introductory biology. So I might say something like, 
use the three components of natural selection to consider a scenario you haven't encountered before. Or another way to say that might be apply the requirements of natural selection to a novel scenario. So they always start with a verb, apply in this case, and they indicate what a student should be able to do. So a student in my class would have been presented, well, would have discovered and then had a formal discussion about the requirements for natural selection. So they will know what I mean by that. And then the novel scenario piece is, I'm going to give you an example that we never talked about in class, and you're going to have to use this. And then in class, I would have done that several times, right? So they would have had the chance to practice that several times. But even embedded in what you just said, there's these three things that they have to know. But based on what you just said, they're not the three things that you told them. They are three things that that you had exercises, you had work in class that they could generate that they could discover from basic principles. So once they know some basic principles, it's like, all right, you, you, you gave them tasks that made them discover those three tenets of natural selection. So they first they discover those. Now, once they've discovered them, and the discovery itself, of course, embeds that knowledge in them because they now have the reasoning to rebuild that at any time. What are the tenets of, you know, what are the principles of natural selection? It's like, oh, what are they? Well, let me think. I don't remember, but let me build them Mm -hmm. for you because I built it before. Yes, exactly. Right. So you don't really have to, you don't have to memorize it as much as, oh, I can build that from basic principles. And how do I know I can do that? Because I did it before. Yes. And I think it does take some work to move students away from wanting to memorize things, but that, that it is set up so that they can do that. Okay, so I want to I want to take a little issue with that memorizing yeah. thing because um, because the they have memorized it they have but they've memorized it in a different way and they've memorized it in a deeper way and a more meaningful way so that it sticks with them mm-hmm. and they they don't have to take your word for it anymore because they know how the, how they got from point A to point B yes so so I think to be f- fluent in any field. All fields have jargon. All fields have a vocabulary. And we have to be able to use that vocabulary. Yes. Otherwise, it takes forever to have a conversation. (laughs) And that vocabulary has to be learned. Yep. Whether it's a foreign language, whether it's in political science. My brother-in-law is a political scientist, and he uses words that he has to define for me because I don't know what they mean. And so you have to have this Mm-hmm. You have to know these terms, mm-hmm. so you do have to memorize things. But the way that you memorize things might be different, whether it's just flashcards, you have to memorize it, or you understand it from basic principles. And the generative classroom is is a different way to learn these things. It's yeah. interesting. If people walked into a generative classroom, mm-hmm. what are they going to see? So let's talk about what they're going to hear. So generative classrooms are very loud. That's because the students are – talking. Now, when you think about the sort of definition of generative that I gave you, that students are generating something that goes beyond what's been presented to them, that could be silent. You could ask students to do that individually, but I have never actually seen that in all the classrooms that we have studied, that people who do generative work always have students work together for some part of that. And so it gets very loud because the students are actually talking to each other and explaining their reasoning to one another and maybe arguing or building logic together. 
So a generative classroom gets loud. But I assume that all loud classrooms aren't necessarily generative. So by the terms you use, do you think an active classroom would be less loud if they're working on an exercise? I'm sure actually we might be able to technically analyze them and find some patterns of sound that correlate with generative because you can certainly have students discuss more of a recall question, but there just isn't that much to talk about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like there isn't a whole lot that you could say to each other. And so you're not going to have as extensive of discussions. Once you get into students having to really explain their reasoning, that is, they generated it. They're not recalling a definition. Then what one student says is going to be really different than what another student says. So then they're going to have to like rectify that with one another and really talk about it. And you talk about this in the paper and you talk about this in the way that the loud classroom is a moment for the instructor and getting back to the first paper to instructor noticing, teacher noticing, instructor noticing, where they can listen to the conversations going on in various groups and start to hear what students are thinking so that they know then how to address hard issues. Yes, exactly. And that was kind of getting into the knowledge results of this paper. That was a key difference that we noticed between the generative instructors and the active instructors in terms of how they thought about their teaching. So the generative instructors were doing a lot of work and thinking in order to monitor students' thinking in real time and respond to that. From an observation perspective, that meant they were circulating the classroom in order to be able to both directly talk to student groups, but also to just eavesdrop and listen to what students were saying. So they were getting a lot of data points or information Mm -hmm. or evidence about student thinking. And they were using that in the short term and the long term. So in the short term, if they hear the same difficulty coming up in multiple groups, that was often a cue for them that they needed to do something. Maybe they would bring the class back together and offer a new piece of information or pose a question so that the groups could get to hear from one another. And they also used that to inform future lessons. So they might have realized this question is more difficult than I anticipated it would be. And in the future, I think I'll ask this other question before I ask this question to help students get to the point I want them to get to. Right. To use jargon, you've already used that pedagogical content knowledge, the specific knowledge about how to teach a specific subject that, you know, in a specific way. So the experience that the instructor goes through, the reflective moments that they can have by ga- gathering that information about what are students thinking, what are they confused about? Okay, let me, let's fix that in, both immediately. And then next year, how am I going to do it better? Exactly. Right. So you get this iterative process. All right. So now I want to move to misconceptions. Okay. And you mentioned, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, Micheline Chi, because she talks about misconceptions in some of her early papers. And I, if she's listening, I want her on this podcast. I need to reach out to her. <laughs> because misconceptions are the hardest thing. It is virtually impossible to displace misconceptions. And so it seems the only way... I think to displace misconceptions is to force students to a, to an impossible situation. And I think the generative classroom is the way to do that. You bring them to a point where, where they come through this generative process of creation conflicts with some moment, something they have in their head about how the world works and they must come into conflict. Mm 
And they must see that in order to jettison the old thinking. Because talking to them, you know, you can teach and you can talk till you're blue in the face and they will not, it will not displace their thinking. Yes, that's right. I, lo- I always like to think that they have likely had that idea for, by the time we see them in college, you know, a decade or more. Yeah. And so me saying it, even if I say it five times in a unit, that's nothing compared to a thought that you've held for 15 years or 10 years. And so you're exactly right. They have to be faced with that through work that they are doing. That is what we see these generative instructors do. So they have that pedagogical content knowledge to anticipate the misconceptions that students will have. So what are the difficult areas of this topic or what are the inaccurate or sometimes just unproductive ideas that students have about a topic? And then they they aim to target those. So they design questions. They want to bring those out. They want students to get the problem wrong because they have that idea and then be faced right. with the fact that that idea is not working for them and they need a different idea. Right. And there are instructors who are generative. They could tell us what misconceptions they anticipated and they had approaches for that and or they were discovering nuance as they went. So they may, if a lesson was newer to them, they might anticipate ideas based on their own guesses. And then once in the classroom, they could actually see what was difficult for students and would then use that knowledge in the future. And I want to clarify, and I know what you meant. They want students to get it wrong. They want students to be confronted with this conflict, but they don't want them to get it wrong on the test. That's right. <laughs> they want it to get it wrong while they're working, while they're thinking about the content, because they get it wrong on the test. No one cares. I got that wrong. Oh, oh well. And, you, and they just throw it away. The student is never confronted with it in a productive way. So you really want students to confront this conflict in the middle of an engaged moment, ideally in the classroom, so that they can talk to their peers and to you. So that you can, again, not give them the answer, but help them struggle. You need that struggle because it's hard. Displacing misconceptions is hard. It's hard for students. It's impossible for you to do it. You can tell them all day long. You can write it down. You can you can tattoo them with it. It doesn't matter uh, unless that tattoo really burns or something. I don't know. <laughs> but that's not allowed. Yeah, Hogwarts. Sorry, visions of Harry Potter and writing in his skin. Yes. (laughs) So let's ask, has anybody done work on misconceptions in a generative classroom and the impact, the ability of generative classrooms to displace misconceptions? Not in those terms, I don't think. But there are certain sorts of assessments that are used in research We refer to them as concept inventories, and they're very different than an assessment that I might write for my class. They are developed through research, and part of what makes a concept inventory a concept inventory is that, one, they focus on concepts, not facts, and two, they're usually multiple choice questions or multiple true-false, and the wrong answers, which we call distractors, (laughs) they distract you from the right answer, the wrong answers are common misconceptions or common wrong ideas. And so if you measure student learning on a concept inventory, 
then you're getting evidence of the degree to which students were able to move beyond those misconceptions. Okay, so you can identify misconceptions using concept mm-hmm. inventories, and that's what mm-hmm. they do. We already know what you've over time you've de- you understood what they are by testing and, and, and refinement. That's right. So you can identify that. Okay, so I think somebody needs to do a study. I'm going to propose okay. a study, and I'm actually going to propose a laboratory study. Like, okay, I, mean, I think you need to partner with a an educational psychologist where you set up lab studies and you bring people in that you know have a misconception, mm-hmm. and then work with them in the lab in different ways. To see what it takes to displace that before you even try it in a classroom. I mean, I think that somebody needs to do this. This is really hard. It is really hard. And it's really important. I don't want to talk about the people that we have out there who practice successfully professionally, but don't have a complete understanding of how this universe works. I'd be interested to look into, so there's something called conceptual change theory that comes out of the K-12 world. A lot of the ideas you've shared as we've been talking about misconceptions are very well aligned with conceptual change theory. This idea that they're very hard to uproot, that students are going to have to be faced with that idea being inadequate, and then have the alternative, the correct idea or the scientifically accurate idea provided to them and use that. So it makes me wonder if there's work at the K-12 level that is what you've described, Mm. where they've tried different approaches. It's been a while since I read any literature in that space. So I I won't rule out that that has been investigated, which could provide some good clues about what we should try in a study of undergraduate students. Okay. We're going to have to come back and have that conversation. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think this is a really important issue for people to think about. I think your papers really bring it to light and do so in a very rigorous way that I appreciate. Anything else you want to say about that before we move on to the next, maybe the last question? I will just offer that I think we have to keep thinking about the expertise that instructors need because the reality is our system of higher education is still based on the assumption that content knowledge is sufficient for effective instruction. You know, we hire people based on their training in content and their research on content. And yet, I think we all actually know from our personal experience that content knowledge is insufficient for effective teaching of any sort because we've all had a brilliant instructor who was really terrible at teaching. And yet, I don't think we're having a lot of conversations about building that knowledge base for faculty as graduate students or as postdocs. And a lot of our training for faculty focuses a little bit more on techniques they could use Mm -hmm. instead of thinking about this core knowledge that they will need to develop to do this or that our work increasingly shows is valuable. Okay. So I I love what you're saying. And so the notion of the way you talked about, I'm going to, I don't want to call it a pipeline, but this progression from graduate student to postdoc for certain fields. Some fields don't have postdocs. Some people, you go from graduate work straight into a a faculty position, a teaching position of some sort. So what would you, what would you build? What would it look like? What's the dream of yours of a, of a training paradigm that you would develop once a student enters graduate school and says, I want it, or maybe even before, maybe even as an undergraduate, because understanding this really helps you learn. Mm-hmm. What knowledge do you think people need? How do you build this? How do you build a system that provides 
the sort of this bifurcated training. Of course, you need your content expertise, but content expertise without this teaching knowledge, both pedagogical knowledge and the pedagogical concept knowledge, isn't productive for your students. Yes, content knowledge is absolutely necessary. I, I wouldn't want to diminish that in any way, but I think necessary but insufficient is the way to think about that. You're asking a big question and I, or I won't display the hubris of acting like I know the answer to it, but I, I can offer a few ideas that I'm sure others can build on in very productive ways. I certainly think it needs to start in graduate school or undergraduate, as you mentioned, but I'll focus on graduate school. For students who know or suspect that they want teaching to be part of their career, and I say it that way very deliberately because I mean anyone who will have teaching as part of their career. I don't just mean people who are going to have teaching as the major responsibility in their career because a lot of students are taught at R1 institutions where their faculty's major responsibility is research, not teaching, but I think the training expectations for them should be just as high. So I think we have to start in graduate school with training programs that are not a side project that students do, maybe when their advisor isn't looking, but is actually an expected and integral part of their training if they are interested in teaching. I'm not suggesting that students who have no interest in teaching need to pursue this sort of development there's some, been some great work in biology by Beth Schusler's lab showing that the teaching professional development provided for graduate students is inadequate in most places. And so I think that gives us a hint that we are not doing this well yet. I think then we also have to really think about it for new faculty because a lot of the work from the K-12 world shows that people learn to teach as a result of teaching. Now, teaching alone is not enough to help you learn to teach, but being able to learn while in the context of having teaching experience is really important. And so I think we have to move away from thinking that faculty arrive ready to teach. Most of them will tell you that isn't true, um, and yet we act like it is true in the mentoring and systems that we set up for them. So I think we need something, maybe, uh, you know, maybe there are some hints from the K-12 world where student teaching is a necessary part of training. Maybe we need some sort of intensive mentored teaching experiences in the first few years of faculty members' life. And I want to offer that all of this requires changes to our culture and our systems. So we probably need to hire people by paying more attention to their genuine interest in teaching well and improving as teachers. And then we need to evaluate their teaching in a way that recognizes and rewards evidence-based and inclusive teaching. And all of that sets up a system where we're placing value on teaching and trying to improve your teaching. Unfortunately, I don't think there's an easy solution to this problem. No, there's no easy solution. Big problems, there's no easy solution. There are lots of them, but none of them easy. So in this light, what are you doing at UGA? What do you do in, in graduate training? Are you guys doing stuff in graduate training? What do you do when you hire new faculty? Another area of research that I work in really thinks about departmental and institutional change. Precisely because I recognize that we could discover everything there is to know about developing 
great instructors, but if we don't have a system that supports that, it won't happen anyway. So I'm part of a great team here at the University of Georgia called the Delta Project that is working toward institutional transformation in how we evaluate teaching. It's focused in STEM departments, but it has a reach beyond just STEM departments. That work is slow, but making headway. I think we're making headway in how teaching is evaluated. And we are looking to expand into thinking about the reward system and hiring systems. We've been able to see some departments make pretty rapid changes. And so I think that's very encouraging that it can be done, that there are a lot of faculty who would like to work in a system that recognize what they invest in their teaching, even as excellent researchers. But I think universities are very complex systems, so you end up needing to change each department, and then you also have to think about what happens at the college level and then the university level. We, like most institutions, have a lot of work left to do. Thank you. Actually, that was a great answer. There was a lot of good stuff early in there. I like that. So tell me why you do what you do. What led you down this path? You were a, I'm going to say, classically trained biologist. Yeah. And you took a different path. That was a choice of yours. Mm -hmm. What's the story that you don't tell people? (laughs) Yeah. I've actually learned not to be shy about telling this story because I learned that it really helps my students to hear it. So now I try to make a habit of sharing it, at least with them. I came into my undergraduate degree really interested in genetics and evolution following my high school experience. And I was reading all sorts of popular science books. I mean, I was very engaged. I was a good student, but I found my science classes very boring and irrelevant, essentially. So after a few years of being a biology major, I switched to psychology because I thought at least the things that are going on here relate to real people. I finished my bachelor's degree in psychology, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with that. I wandered around a bit, which is the part I really try to elaborate for my students. I think I was struggling because I was really interested in science, but I was also really interested in learning and people, and I wasn't sure how to bring those things together. So when I pursued a PhD, my advisor, Stephen Kalinowski, was doing some work studying his own classroom, trying to be a great instructor and and to do it in a really systematic way. So he was trying interventions and testing their effectiveness and He shared a bunch of literature with me and said, oh, if you want to do something in this area too, you know, let me know. I read all those papers and it made me really mad because I realized that for like 20 years, the research had been there to show that lecture-only classes were not how we ought to be teaching STEM classes. And yet that is what I had experienced almost ubiquitously. The desire to change that has been driving me since that time. We know a lot of what we could be doing to really uh, help our students learn and keep them in science, a diverse group of them in science, but actually enacting that is really difficult. So I try to do work that can help us get there. Nice. So how is this focus on student success and classroom improvement? 
How does how has that affected your life outside of the universities? Mm. Athens is a small town. It is. When you're in downtown, you're at a restaurant or you're when you're out living your life, interacting with people that have nothing to do with the university. Mm-hmm. How has that lens affected your life? That's a really interesting question. Two things come to mind immediately. One, I think really differently about how people learn. So I recognize that me telling people things is unlikely to be effective. That doesn't mean I don't try that because it's a hard habit to break. But I think I'm able to quickly realize that I need to get them engaged in thinking about it in some way if I'm going to help someone understand something different. So that's relevant with my kids when I'm thinking about how to help them understand something. Mm -hmm. I think it's also relevant just in many different interactions where maybe I want someone to see a different point of view or have a different idea. Mm -hmm. I also think I realize that I need to understand what they're thinking. And again, I don't enact this with perfect fidelity, but I recognize that understanding what they think is going to be sort of my best info for how I could shift that thinking. So trying to center the ideas someone else has as I'm trying to, if if I'm trying to engage with them and, and maybe maybe uh, suggest a different way of thinking or, or change the conversation a little bit. Interesting. Thank you. Tess, I want to thank you so much for your time today. This has been a a really fun conversation, fun, interesting, informative, and uh, and inspiring in many ways. I, I really think that the work you've done and are continuing to do, because we're going to come back and talk about your current work and some future work, this is really important to help students think more deeply about what it means to be in a classroom and to be an active classroom and to be a, a present, reflective instructor. And I think we've talked about things today that people can implement in their classroom to make them a more a more generative classroom, right? A classroom to engage students more in, really engage students in, in ways of creating their own knowledge, because that's the only way this works. That's right. I want to thank you so much for your time. It's been great. Thank you. It's been so fun to get a chance to hear your thoughts and talk about this work. Our website, teachingforstudentsuccess.org will provide additional information about Dr. Tessa Andrews, her research, and readings she recommends. Thank you for spending time with us today. Please share our podcast and website with your friends. Thank you to the Army of Education researchers out there working to improve the learning experiences and learning environments for all students with the goal of providing opportunities that help all students succeed. Those of us at Teaching for Student Success would love your feedback. Please contact us through our website at teachingforstudentsuccess.org. Tell us about your favorite episode. Please take this opportunity to let us know if there is a topic you would like to hear about or interviewee that you would like to hear from. Teaching for Student Success is a production of Teaching for Student Success Media. Let's end this podcast with some music by Julius H., Some of Julius's music can be found on Pixabay. Mm -hmm.